On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Paul Burford of BTR Fabrications in Froome in the United Kingdom. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone with a frame builder and I try to help them tell their story of how they got started, how they learned, what they now know. And, uh, and I really like to emphasize sort of like values and perspectives discussions. And so, for instance, sometimes a frame builder's journey is uh, a little bit more rooted in like the aesthetic and making a very beautiful bike. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit more rooted in like engineering and like trying to design something that's really a tool. And uh, so I think that one, that particular question comes out a lot in this week because uh, these mountain bikes that BTR Fabrications is known for are, uh, they really, to me, they strike me as like tools of shredding your bike in the woods. Uh, They made long and slack and sort of progressive geometry mountain bikes before it was a very popular trend. And so it's cool to get the history of how they went about doing that and how that's evolved over the years, how the components uh, have changed and, you know, allowed, allowed them to do that differently. And so uh, a lot of cool discussion that I was excited to get out. And at the end, we talk a little bit about uh, the idea of like building a YouTube channel or a podcast uh, that came up because he's interested in that. And it's something that I've been doing. And uh, maybe that's relevant to some of our listeners. Um, hope you enjoy the interview just as much as I did. Um, so for me, it was kind of, I got into mountain bikes when my dad bought a bike shop. Mm-hmm. So we were, I grew up in South Africa. I was actually born, born out there. And then like we moved over to England when I was about 13 years old. Uh-huh. And like my dad in South Africa, he owned like lawnmower shops. Um, and he was like, sort of like a car mechanic and like, he raced cars and had lawnmower shops and, you know, kind of fixed lawnmowers and that sort of stuff. Um, and then when he moved over here to England, he was kind of looking for something that he could get his hands dirty, like repairing stuff, but didn't didn't really want to do lawnmowers and that sort of stuff anymore and thought that bicycle shop would be a good thing to do. Um, so he, he then like bought a bike shop and then off the back of that, you know, like we would go to trade shows and that kind of stuff. And I saw like trials, like a trials show at one of these trade shows. Mm-hmm. And then when we got back from that, I kind of got on his old mountain bike and was just like stuck some pallets on the ground and was trying to ride over them and things like that. And then met a couple of guys from like, from hanging out in the bike shop that were into sort of mountain biking, doing a bit of street riding and uh, getting getting off road here and there, um, reading magazines and that kind of stuff. So I got into mountain biking that way. And then it was like seeing things in the magazines about like Brooklyn Machine Works and Curtis bikes and uh, a few other sort of handmade bikes. And I just thought that was like really cool. Yeah. And I was like, when I'm older, I want to make I want to make bikes myself. But I never really knew about any sort of like schools or anything like that that were teaching people to make bike frames. I just 
I just figured I needed to like learn sort of welding and fabrication and that side of stuff. Yeah. So. So, so, yeah, so it was kind of as a, you were interested camp. in in trials and you were thinking about this stuff as like a teenager. Yeah. So it was um, it was more so like I didn't really know. So yeah, as a so when we moved over here to England, sort of a young teenager, my hobbies were. You know, I'd get into something for like six months to a year and then, you know, find some other hobby and would um, get into that for sort of six months a year. And it was like constantly changing my hobbies until my dad bought the bike shop and I found mountain biking and then like kind of mountain biking stuck. (laughs) You never got over Uh, that one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, it was just like... I didn't really know anything about my like mountain biking or anything like that until my dad bought the bike shop. And then yeah, it was we like went to a trade show and there was a like a trials demonstration and I was just like that's really cool. I want to I want to sort of play doing that sort of thing. I didn't really know what it was or yeah. You know, I didn't really know that there were any other sides of mountain biking. And then my dad had like an old mountain bike in the in the shed that had these kind of bull bull horn handlebars on it, so not like the opposite of drop bars basically. Mm-hmm. And I just got that out and was like playing around with it in the back garden with some pallets and stuff. And then we'd go up the woods, sort of like find some little walkers trails and that sort of stuff. And would ride around those with some friends and things like that. Not really knowing what I was doing or anything like that. But, you know, reading reading the mountain bike magazines, MBUK and Dirt magazine, I sort of started getting more into the downhill side of things. And like I said, it was with those guys that came into the shop. And they were into, you know, mountain biking properly. So, yeah, it was kind of like hanging around with them and reading the magazines. I got into mountain biking. It wasn't necessarily like the trial specifically. It was just like that was kind of the first thing that I saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, trials, you know, when you see someone who's really good at that sort of riding especially is like a mesmerizing and eye-catching thing where yeah. uh, when you're riding in the woods over obstacles it's the same sort of thing and it's maybe more attainable and more approachable for a lot of people or more practical but to see someone uh doing really cool trials riding i can definitely relate yeah. to that like i remember when some of those uh you know nearly 10 years ago some of those early danny mccaskill videos were all over the internet the impression that that made on me you know i was riding fixies and stuff but i said oh man that's so cool i gotta do that i yeah. gotta learn you know uh, and I bought a trials bike from somebody and I never got any good at doing the actual tricks and stuff, yeah. but I, I wanted to, cause it's just, it, it has that, um, that visual appeal. You just see it and say, oh man, I want to do that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, they're like, I guess the same with anything. The pros make it so much easy, make it look so much easier than it actually <laughs> is. So, yeah. You just kind of like get your front wheel up onto two pallets and then fall up, fall off sort of thing. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, like you say, going up the woods and just sort of belting around is so much easier, so much more sort of accessible for for people getting into it. Yeah. And then, yeah, also like looking at the magazines where they were, you know, the sort of downhill racing side of thing, that, that sort of caught my interest a lot more than, than the trial side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it was, there was like a few handmade brands like in the uk it was curtis who was still going um and there was another company called revel 
that were making stuff in the UK, and then obviously Brooklyn Machine Works in the States. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was like super interesting, and like I wanted to do that. I think also growing up as a kid, like making stuff, course. So yeah, looking back now, now that I do what I do, like looking back as a child, you know, I was always going to be making stuff. I remember in primary school, like every morning, the teacher would like stand us in a semicircle in the class and get us to, you know, he would fire out like mental arithmetic at us, so like you know, do do the times table and division and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we were all in a in a semicircle, and if you got the question right, you would move up, you know, a place in the semicircle, and if you got a question wrong, you would move down. Mm-hmm. And I was always in like sort of the bottom three, you know, I was never any good <laughs> like doing that mental arithmetic side of thing but you know he would like a couple of times through the year he would set us like a like a making project so I remember one specifically we had to make like a a rocking chair out of clothes pegs Uh and when it came to that side of thing I was always like top of the class but it it isn't until now that when I look back I'm like yeah I was was good at that kind of stuff but not good at the math so I was always going to kind of be doing something with my hands Uh uh-huh so yeah, looking at the at the bike brands that were making stuff, I, that just kind of piqued my interest. I was definitely I wanted to do that. You know, I was into making bikes and yeah. I was into making stuff. Or oh, sorry, I was into riding bikes and I was into making stuff. So I just wanted to make bikes. Yeah. But I didn't know of any sort of like ways to get into it. You know, there's all sorts of frame building schools and stuff now. Yeah. So, w- what were the first steps? What did those look like, and when was that? So, in my mind, I had to um, learn sort of engineering so that I could design a bike, um, and then I needed to learn how to weld in order to be able to make a bike. So, when it came to finishing school, I went and did engineering courses because you know I needed to learn engineering in, in order to make a bike. And then sort of while I was at college, they, so over here, it's kind of different to the States. We've got college, which is you finish school when you're 16 and you go to college till you're 18 and then you go to university after that. Mm, Okay. So yeah, college, it was sort of like a a theory course, you know, you learn the theory behind engineering, but it was like one of the teachers was ill or something, so he couldn't like teach us one of the courses that we needed to do so they just kind of stuck us in the welding workshop instead of like doing that course Mm -hmm. Uh, and then yeah I really enjoyed the welding side of things Uh, I learned a bit of sort of MIG welding and a tiny little bit of TIG welding and I didn't think I wanted to go to university so I was kind of looking at getting an apprenticeship in, in welding and that kind of stuff but everyone else that I was friends with at college or went to university. So I was like kind of torn between the two. Should I go to uni or should I not sort of thing? And I was looking through a, like a university prospectus and there was a course for motorsport engineering. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I was just like, that sounded super cool. So I applied for that and managed to get in. So yeah, it was kind of like, you know, I needed to, to learn engineering and, and welding stuff. So I went to college and universities to learn that side of things. And then it was after university I got a job 
uh, at a fabrication place, just a sheet metal workshop, welding. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, sort of cut my teeth learning welding on the job. And then with some of the the stuff I'd learnt with engineering and and welding, I kind of combined the two. Yeah. What was you know like in what year did you build your first bike frame? Uh, the first frame. Well, so. I can't remember what you so technically the first bike frame I made was with my dad in his bike shop so it would have probably been when I was like 15 16 mm-hmm. um, he got some plans for for a recumbent off the internet just some like super basic plans um, and we just bought some like mild steel tubing and you uh-huh. know just in the in the workshop for the bike shop we you know just kind of held held the tubing together you know, closed our eyes and tacked it together. Um, and then, yeah, we had this sort of recumbent thing that we played around for a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I guess that was kind of the first bike frame that we made. But then it was, it wasn't until like 20, I think 2011 was the first frame that Tam and I designed and built together. Mm-hmm. And so you talk about this on your website some, but, you know, the BTR fabrication for until recently was a partnership between you and and your friend Tam and so uh, you did more of the hands-on fabrication and I guess he did some more of the uh, design and some other elements and together uh, you know you met each other I imagine at university or something and and decided that you wanted to uh, start making some bikes and so uh, definitely I want to talk some about the partnership dynamic what that's like some of the pros and cons uh, how did you know? How did you guys get to know each other and decide that you wanted to do this venture together? So it was through a company that was set up in the town that we both went to university in. So we went to Oxford Brooks University. So that's not the like the proper fancy Oxford Uni. It was just a <laughs> yeah. We weren't we weren't that clever. Um, but yeah, there was a like a, a bike company called K9 Industries that had set up in in Oxford um, and that was also not another previous student of the un- of the same uni that we, that we went to um, and they were designing like um, like quite a forward-thinking uh, downhill bike with quite progressive suspension and geometry mm-hmm. um, and I saw I saw an article in dirt magazine like about this company so I you know, off the back of that, I sent them an email being like, I'm studying at the same university you went to. I'd love to just come out, come around and hang out sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Tam was working there on his, uh, like on his engineering placement year. Yeah. Um, so I was still in my, like, still studying at uni on the course. And then he was doing his placement year. And then, yeah, it was just kind of, through that company that we met and we just started hanging out riding bikes and going to the pub and that kind of stuff um and then yeah i think it was just a, at the pub one day i was like telling him how i wanted to sort of start my own bike company and make my own frames and that kind of stuff and he was like yeah i'd like to do that too um so yeah we kind of said to each other that we that we wanted to start a frame building company Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until like quite a few years after uni that we actually like started doing it. So, um, 
I'm just trying to think how the actual timeline went about. So it was uh, so I was racing a lot of downhill before university. Um, I got pretty good. I was sort of in the expert category in the UK mm-hmm. um, on the edge of getting to, to World Cups when I decided to go to university. Um, and then I was thinking, while I'm at university, I'm not going to need like a full-on downhill bike. Uh, so I switched over to riding hardtails. Yeah. Thinking, so like the idea in the back of my head as well was that, you know, hardtail is going to teach me more about riding a bike than, than a full suspension wheel because obviously I'm not going to have all the suspension taking out the terrain and making things easier. I'll have to mm-hmm. learn how to ride the terrain better on a hardtail. And then that would improve my riding so that after university I could kind of, you know, be a better rider. But there weren't that many sort of, um, so like hardtails back then were sort of, you know, jump bikes and sort of play bikes and that sort of thing. There were a couple of sort of what we'd call enduro bikes now, but back then it was all mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, so my down, my background was downhill. Um, and I wanted a, a downhill hardtail. So, you know, a hardtail frame that was specifically designed for, for riding downhill on. And I kind of mentioned that to Tam, like while we were at uni, talking about starting up our own company. And he, in his spare time outside of work, had got together a, a design of this downhill hardtail. Um, and then I flunked out of uni, like I didn't manage to past my second year and then Tam stayed at uni and then I got a job TIG welding like I said at the sheet metal place yeah um still with the intention of starting up a, a bike company and Tam was I continued to work at K9 Industries after he finished his course mm-hmm. um and then you know, as I got better and better at TIG welding, I'd you know keep them updated, being like, oh, I reckon I could, I reckon I'm good enough to weld up a bike frame now, that sort of thing. Um, and then I think just one day out of the blue, he rang me up, um, and he was like, right, we're going to start this bike company then, or what? <laughs> I think he just kind of, yeah, he just kind of got fed up of working at this place. Like, um, he had his own ideas and was getting fed up with being told what to do sort of thing so mm-hmm. yeah it just rang me up and was like right are we going to flip and do this or what and so I was like yeah let's do it um, so yeah I guess that's kind of how we how we started up to, to so yeah he sent me the sent me the design for the bike and yeah we sort of went from there and by this point uh, you had quite a bit of experience with TIG welding and maybe some general fabrication. Uh, you know, bike frames present a lot of technical fabricating issues. The, the wall thickness on the tubing is thin. Some of the joints have yeah. really poor access. You're trying to get the frame to come out straight. Uh, you want the welds to look really pretty, even the ones that are hard to access. Uh, there's a lot of different considerations than what you're going to see in many other, you know, uh, arenas of fabrication. When you went to build the first couple bikes, was that really challenging, or was the background that you had prior to that 
enough to make the learning curve pretty manageable uh yeah i'd say yeah it was still pretty challenging um is I, I guess i was still i was really naive at that point as well so um i had no idea that the sort of um handmade frame building um area was as quite as big as it was um like i mentioned those three companies that i knew about but i didn't know you know the whole sort of um road bike side of the market <laughs> yeah um and it wasn't until like we went to the first bespoke over here where i was looking through the exhibitor list and i was like oh my god there's actually so many people in the uk <laughs> making bike frames yeah um so yeah i was pretty naive to it um so yeah we just kind of just got stuck in and started making making things and it wasn't you know the first first couple of frames that we made we weren't necessarily trying to make them as beautiful as they could be or anything like that mm -hmm. um, we were just kind of making a bike frame um, but yeah kind of yeah it's hard to remember now back then <laughs> Yeah. So, so you you uh you have these ideas. I mean, what when I see your bikes now, what I think of is like these are a lot of them are hardtails. Some of them are full suspension, and they look like very aggressive tools of mountain biking. You know, they look very much like tools. Like they're yeah, right. they look good and they look like they're made very well, but they don't look like it doesn't it doesn't seem like the same thing to me as the people who are making a super artisanal product where half of the attention seem and i'm not trying to downplay this either yet, but, that's, that's, but you know some people it seems like it's very much about the the like jewelry of it and the paint job yeah. of it and when i see yours it looks like a, it's very much a tool you know like it makes sense yeah, right. that you also make those trail tools because it's like that's also a tool that you use for mountain biking yeah. it's like these are yeah. these are things that allow you to go out into the woods and to do some awesome riding i know you guys did long and slack mountain bike geometry before it was such a big trend um like you know did did you guys have that idea from the beginning you're saying like the the sort of hardtail downhill bike was that kind of the whole idea from the beginning was to make these long and slack hardtails or how did that evolve over the years um you know how did how did like the brand that is btr fabrication how did that become sort of clarified and focused to what it is today so i think um both tam and i are um definitely from the mentality of like engineering first aesthetic second uh -huh. um and for me um a mountain bike is definitely a tool to do a job yeah you know i mean the um the aim is to get down the hill as quick as possible um and the you know the terrain that we ride over when you when you have a crash, your bike's going to like smash into some rocks and get <laughs> up and, you know, it's, um, it's definitely, uh, also like growing up on the, the downhill scene here in the UK, it wasn't, it wasn't like it is now. You'd, you'd, um, the trucks that used to get us up the hill were like quarry trucks and we'd all just like stack our bikes up like 100 200 bikes all stacked <laughs> up in the back of a quarry truck and they'd take you up the back uh, take you up a hill uh -huh. and so your bike would get like absolutely mashed like in these trucks uh 
you know, ten times worse in the back of the truck than it was going down the going down the downhill track. Yeah. Um. So for me, it was definitely like fancy paint jobs and the artisanal side of things um, was definitely not um, an aspect of why I got into making bikes. Mm-hmm. Um. I kind of. I kind of got into it because I wanted to make bikes um, and I wanted to make mountain bikes. It wasn't because I wanted to make something pretty or something really nice. Yeah. Um, and the same with Tam. Do you know what I mean? It was um, we're definitely from the engineering side of things. Yeah. Um, so like the paint jobs that we use are powder coat rather than wet spray. Um you know, because it's, it's more durable, you know, wet spray, as soon as you park it against a wall or something like that, it chips and you've got a big old chip in the side of your bike, whereas a yeah. powder coat's a lot more durable than that. Yeah. Um, and that whole kind of, for me, growing up, like the, the fashion side of, of biking kind of really annoyed me. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, like on some of the race teams that I was on, you know, people were worried about the way that they looked while they were riding their bike. And I, I was just like, what high? No one's looking. They're like, why do you care about what you look like when you're riding? Do you know what I mean? You're you're trying to beat the clock. You're trying to beat everyone else. It doesn't matter what you look like. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and so, yeah, that was definitely when we came to making our bike, it didn't didn't matter what it looked like it just had to do the job really well mm-hmm. um and then yeah some of the like the the x gussets and stuff that we had on our bike it was like 100 percent engineering driven not aesthetics mm-hmm. um there was your your question about the the long and the long and slack yeah so that was like i said to tam i wanted to I wanted a downhill hardtail so that I could go and race, you know, downhill on a hardtail and improve my riding so that when I got back on a full suspension bike, I'd be, you know, a better rider. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so like, he had come, come around with the thinking of, like, the really slack head angle um, was to do with the... Um, so when you've got a, a full suspension bike and you've got the you know suspension front and back, the kind of um, dynamic geometry of the bike stays quite similar, you know, because the the front wheels moving, the back wheels moving, and the frame will kind of stay quite stable. Mm-hmm. But on a hardtail where you've only got suspension on the front, you know, the geometry is changing as you use your your oh. front suspension. So you know the it kind of pivots on the rear contact patch so as you're using up the the front suspension your handlebars are diving away from you and your head angles getting steeper mm-hmm. so at the time where you know you'd have a hardtail sat on the ground and it's got like a you know, say for example it was a 68 degree head angle as you're using up the travel it gets steeper and steeper and by the time you're bottomed out your head angles like quite steep and it's not um you know, it's not at a practical, practical angle. Mm-hmm. So, where the first bike that we 
designed and built was the was the belter which has got a 61 degree head angle mm -hmm. and that's that's static so when you're when you're sat on it and you've added your weight to it and the suspension's sagged a little bit, the you know the head angle sort of 63 degrees, um, and then that's sort of like you know a bit more bit more sensible for riding. And then when it's completely bottomed out, it's not super steep, it's still you know quite a stable head angle. Yeah. Um, I actually hadn't thought of that. That's pretty. Um, that's pretty. Yeah. Uh, a good observation yeah because with the full suspension uh the frame more or less just kind of drops and so your your head angle would yeah mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense actually um because yeah. to, to me you know the the longer that you make the front end when you're going fast and descending uh then you know the the more resistant you'd be to to getting flung over a log or a rock or something because you're yeah. uh, your front is long enough you know you have like sort of some leverage against that but uh makes sense also yeah, just because through the compression, I didn't think of that. Yeah, right. And then, like, the first frame that we built was actually quite short. You know, it ended up being... So it was built for me, and I'm six foot two. Mm -hmm. um, but that ended up actually being the size small. Um, and the thing with, like, um, mountain bikes compared to road bikes is on a on a road bike you're sat down in the saddle most of the time or for like quite a few hours if you're going out for a long bike ride yeah. and so you notice when stuff's too small for you 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 know it becomes really uncomfortable and and whatnot whereas with the mountain bike you're riding over really rough terrain it's really unpredictable so you know you kind of adjust your your riding position to account for that mm-hmm um, so when this this first frame that we made was was really small, I was you know going to races and stuff and just adjusted my riding position so that I had my weight way over the back wheel, um, and I actually was like hitting my balls on the back tire quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, so I mentioned that to Tam. I was like, I keep hitting my nuts on the tire. Um, so it's like, oh, we should make you a bigger frame then, so that your your weight's kind of more stable between the t between the wheels. Uh huh. Um, and then yeah, rode the bigger size for a little bit, and you know he would watch me riding, and he was like, no, you're still hanging off the back too much. We should make the frame longer. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was kind of an iterative process of him kind of watching me ride and saying, oh yeah, your position's still not quite right, and then adjusting it. Um, so yeah, like you say, we were way ahead of the curve and on the sort of long and slack side of things, um, mainly because I wanted a, a downhill hardtail and he came, came around with this idea of the, you know, the, the, the geometry of the bike pivoting on the rear axle and then, you know, me riding it and seeing my position on it and then just increasing the size of it to suit my, to suit me better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on any of this. I, I just love it and think it's fascinating. But, you know, one of the criticisms people will will commonly say about really long and really slack uh, hardtails is that they don't always climb as well because you have your weight so close to the, to the rear, you know, um, which is, you know, whatever. Uh, what's interesting about that is that if you think of it not as a, you know, a mountain bike that's made for every piece of terrain equally but it's it's more of a downhill hardtail well then of course you you would not care so much about how it ascended you would care almost completely about how it descended 
Uh, yeah. So then also it's, that's to do with kind of seat angle as well. Mm-hmm. So um, when we brought out the Ranger, which is like what Enduro was kind of taken off at the time and we designed and built the Ranger. Um, so that's got a slightly steeper head angle at 64 degrees. Uh-huh. Um, but then the seat angle we made a lot steeper than, than anything else at the time. And then that was to kind of get your your weight distribution between the wheels a lot better as well. So uh, when you're climbing up something steep, if you've got a slack seat angle, your your weight's over the back wheel, and, you know, and then it doesn't climb so well because the, the front wheel's trying to lift up all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the steering's quite light and not very direct. So, you know, we made a, a much steeper seat angle, which then put your weight sort of more evenly between the wheels when you're when you're sitting down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the uh the mountain bike that I built last year so that I would have YouTube videos um so that we have such long winters here and it's finally warming up again and I got all the parts and I'm like two or three days away from my first ride on that bike. So I'm really stoked yeah. and I wanted um you know, I haven't done a whole lot of mountain biking and I've only ever owned one like old cross country mountain bike, but I wanted to try a more forward geometry bike. And so I think my front center on that is 850 millimeters and my head angle is 65. And so it's, it's a fairly long bike and I'm just, uh, I cannot wait to, to get out and ride that and to see how I like it and, um, what I can learn from it and apply toward the next ones. Uh, Mm -hmm. what you're saying about your ranger sounds maybe a little bit more in line with mine. I'm curious after this to, to go look at your geometry charts and compare it to mine, uh, to see (laughs) where they're similar Mm -hmm. and different. Cause I referenced a lot of different sources and I talked to, uh, you know, some people who design a lot of mountain bikes, but, um, Mm -hmm. but I didn't look at your stuff. So now I'm, I'm real curious about that. Yeah, cool. It's always uh, always good when you're when you're uh, that first ride on a new bike is really exciting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It was like um, I remember the first ride on the the first Belter that we made. Like um, so when we when we first started out, Tam was still in Oxford, um, you know, working at this company, and I was back. I was in um in a town called Worthing near Brighton. So we were probably like. Um, 50, 60 miles apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd built the frame and then I went up to go and see him in Oxford and we, you know, built it up into a complete bike using some components of mine and some components of his. And then we went up and, and had a ride on it. And yeah, it was just, yeah, it was spectacular. Do you know what I mean? It completely blew both of our minds <laughs> on how good it was. And, That's awesome. you know, it's like you, when you first build it, you're like, is this going to be okay? Because I remember seeing when he, when he first showed me the design and it had a 61 degree head angle, I was just like, Tam, are you, are you sure that's, that's mental? Um, but then, yeah, when we took it out and rode it, it was just like, yeah, it was incredible. It was so good. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, what history favors the bold or something. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's good. Uh, you know, Peter Verdone is someone who writes a lot about mountain bike design and talks about it a lot and he's very opinionated and, um, you know but uh anyway what something he said that resonated with me when i was designing my bike and i talked to him some was he said you'd be better off going too far and learning from that than not going far enough and that he like in he pushed me to really like take the design as far as i could take it 
in a, in yeah. a sort of, you know, really exaggerate things uh, in the direction of, you know, some of these trends and see, you know, and like learn from it. And so I think that's a good spirit to have, especially with a new company and with a new design is um, if you're making a bike for a customer and you're not so sure and they're putting up a lot of money, like, well, then maybe you need to be a little bit more conservative in your approach in order to not, you know, make something that's a total joke or that's totally unrideable. But there are really uh, times in life where, where you need to, you need to make some, you know, bold steps to, to push it. And, yeah, okay. um, you know, the like, thing with bikes is that, um, you know, you're going to have to try really, really hard to make something that's totally unrideable. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what I mean? There'll be, like we've done a few, uh, like articles with magazines where they, you know, they built a bike, so we did something with what mountain bike where they were going to make like a bike that was kind of sensible and a bike that really pushed the boundaries. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and the, and the bike that really pushed the boundaries is only like slightly more slack and slightly more long than the, than the belter frame that we make. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the, in the article, they're like, yeah, it still rides really good. And the guy that, <laughs> um, the guy that designed and built that bike, he still owns it and still rides it and still, you know, still has great fun on it. That's awesome. Um, and there's been a few companies that have um, come and gone recently that, um, you know, built bikes that were slacker and longer than ours that people still really enjoy riding. You know, like yeah, I think there's, um, you know, you can you can think that you're going really extreme and still ride it and think, oh, this is actually really nice because, you know, it will solve some problems, but mm-hmm. not all problems. And so um, you can you adjust your riding style to, to compensate for the things that are not so good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, like saying, yeah, I think you'd have to try really hard to make something that is actually completely unrideable. <laughs> and in that sense, it would probably be something that's like, you know, really old school rather than something that's new school that would be unrideable, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I wanted to ask you some about the, you called it the, I think the X-Brace, but that, you know, You know, so traditionally you'll see on dirt jumpers and different bikes, you'll see sometimes like a gusset welded on. That's like sort of like a clamshell, like half of a tube on the lower side of the down tube where it meets the head tube. And, um, and I don't know, you know, I'm not an engineer. I haven't done FEA on that. And I don't know that much about that style of bikes. Um, I've heard some people say that if you do that wrong, it makes it weaker. I don't know if that's true. Uh, but I mean, like, what was the design process like with what you guys do, uh, in, you know, ascertaining that it was going to be effective and, you know, figuring out efficient ways to fabricate that? Like, what was that whole process like? So, um, so yeah, like saying those, those sort of plate style gussets that go on the like a clamshell that goes on the tube and you weld that on that all that's doing is basically transferring the stress so it's taking the stress from the head tube and you know putting it into that gusset and then when it reaches the end of that gusset you know the the stress is then passed into the tube yeah um and what you basically want from from a gusset is to to dissipate the stress Mm-hmm. So they you know, look, you've got a really long suspension fork trying to rip the head tube off. Um, you want it to to take the stress from the bottom of the head tube and kind of spread it into the rest of the frame. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. in an effective manner. Um, so you've like there have been bikes in the past that have got gussets on either side of the the two tubes, the top tube and the down tube, in a similar way to what we did with the X gusset, but they're just kind of big solid plates. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's doing the same thing. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of bracing all those tubes together, but it's just a massive solid stiff chunk of metal and it's just taking the stress from from the fork and putting it further down the tubes um and that can be effective because you know as it goes across that distance the stress kind of dissipates a little bit but what we were doing with that x gusset is that the the gusset was actually flexible so it was taking the stress from the from the bottom of the head tube and transferring it into the down tube and top tube but you know where the gusset was flexing it was dissipating the stress a lot more mm-hmm. so as it got into the the top tube and down tube it, the the stress was a lot lower than it was as if it if it was a big solid plate yeah um so yeah and, and uh, when Tam was working with uh canine industries they he, he was basically the engineer for them and so he'd done a lot of you know stress stress analysis and all that kind of stuff fea um so he'd kind of chucked his his ideas into these into the fea and got some results out of that that confirmed his ideas mm-hmm. yeah that's awesome uh, yeah and then yeah so when you've got um like you want where the the gussets where they attach to the tubes can have a big effect on on the stress as well. So if you've got um, you see a lot of chainstay gussets like a plate style chain chainstay gusset or seat stay gusset where they've just got a single plate in the centre of the tubes. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think like where you're if you imagine you've got like a, a plate style gusset in the centre of the tubes and you haven't got a rear axle in there and you're you're squeezing the two tubes together. Yeah. Um, you know, those, that gusset is going to be creating a point load like on the center of the seat stay. And if you think if you're going to keep pressing it and pressing it, that, you know, the gusset is going to cause the tube to sort of buckle where the end of that gusset is. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's kind of making sense. Yeah, like a tube with a consistent material properties over its length would bow sort of evenly but if you have like an extra strong gusset that meets a tube then that that one point where the gusset meets the tube is is uh that's the point that's going to see this this concentration of stress right yeah yeah and so then if you've got like the the gusset so you basically want to get two plate gussets and put them on the top and the bottom of the tube so it's touching on the on the tangents of the tube Mm mm-hmm um, and then that like dissipates the stress into the tubes a lot better than in, you know just a single plate in the middle of the tubes. I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so w- one of the things that I definitely want to talk about is mountain bike components. Uh, you know, I talked, I interviewed Paul Price, and that was kind of interesting. You know, Paul Component, they made mountain bike parts since 1989, and you know that was a different era when we just didn't have as many good parts that you could buy on the yeah. shelf. And it just seems like every year better and better stuff comes out. He told us about how one year in the nineties Shimano came out with XTR and that changed everything. And yeah. and so even in the time that you've been making bikes, 
Uh, I'm thinking, you know, dropper posts and tires and suspension forks. Like so much has changed and evolved mostly for the better. Uh, and that's great. One thing that I know is, you know, like the stanchion diameter on uh, single crown forks has gotten a lot larger and the travel has gotten longer and there's more options for longer travel forks. And so I know like when you have a really slack head angle or the, as the head angle gets slacker and slacker, um, you're, you're putting sort of a weird load on the, the fork because it's trying to telescope, but um, the slacker it gets, the more that all those telescoping parts are getting sort of, yeah. you know, tweaked to the side. So uh, the diameter of the stanchions helps. But like, what have been some of the most meaningful uh, improvements in the components that you can put on your bikes in the last, you know, 10 years or roughly that you've been making these bikes? So like you mentioned, dropper posts, that's had a, like a major effect on, you know, what you can do on, do on your bike or maybe not necessarily what you can do on your bike, but it just makes life a load easier. You know, you get to the top of a climb, you can just drop your saddle and, and then go belting down the other side without your saddle getting in the way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, um, I don't necessarily know like anything specifically that has made sort of designing and making bikes easier but yeah just generally the the general progression of components is kind of you know um, in general just made bikes a load better um like having stronger wheels and stronger forks and all that kind of stuff has just allowed us to to ride more gnarly terrain more confident confidently Mm-hmm. Like better brakes, better tires has allowed you to to go faster because you know you're going to be able to stop better and you know that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, like um, better uh, suspension components, so better rear shocks and forks as well. You know, that's just allowed allowed you to to ride rougher terrain more confidently and you know just feel safer in general. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's the name of the game. You know, if you want to go down the, the, you know, the hill as quickly as possible, well then, uh, you either need, you know, some sort of death wish or you need uh, gear that actually inspires yeah. confidence and gives you control and, um, you know, brakes and tires and suspension, all that stuff. Uh, is so essential to that. Um, yeah. So, so you, you make a trail tool, which I think is really cool. You know, I think of it as, it's not really a shovel, but it's, you know, sort of a multi-purpose, you know, tool that you use to groom yeah. groom trails. And so if you're a mountain bike rider, there's an element of stewardship in the land that you ride on. And uh, if you're into, you know, dirt jump and that sort of thing, then of course you're actually out there with shovels building jumps. But, uh, you know, uh, what does that project mean to you? Like, what is the, what's the idea behind that project? It's a really cool looking uh tool um yeah tell us about that so it initially came about uh someone that had bought um a ranger off us up in scotland was um uh part of like a trail building crew that was into maintaining some of the trails up in scotland mm-hmm. um and they were they were like buying mcleod tools uh from the states which is basically it's basically the same design as, as our trail tool, um, but it's made out of much thinner thinner material, and it's used by like forestry and stuff like that to um, to like build fire breaks. Or if there's like a fire going on, you know they can kind of um, scrape some of the forest material out of the way so that the fire doesn't spread as quickly and that kind of stuff. 
Um, so they were buying those from the States and just destroying them because they were made out of like quite flimsy material. Um, and so, yeah, he he bought a ranger of us and knew what we were about and what we were up to and that kind of stuff and just kind of asked us if we were up, if we were into to making him a couple of these tools that were just a bit stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we made him a batch of like five or six of them, I think. Um, yeah, and he absolutely loved them. He said they were great um, and that we should like consider selling them. Um, so, yeah, we just kind of like, took it on and built a batch of them and got them on sale and yeah, it's just kind of grown from there basically like more and more people have bought them and started using them and yeah yeah like you say there's with the the mountain biking side of things there's like five ten years ago there wasn't um trail centers like there is now so if you you know if you wanted to to go mountain biking you had to go and build your own tracks yeah um and yeah i was super into that as well um you know building my own tracks was something i really enjoyed doing uh, so i was dead keen on on taking on this project and, and making these tools because you know i wanted one for myself as well yeah so you um, get those like a uh, laser cut or water jet cut or something and yeah. then you tig weld uh the part that interfaces with the shaft and you just buy a bunch of you know wood handles essentially and you just assemble them and Get them powder yeah, coated so, and all yeah. that. That's so actually MIG welded. Um, awesome. So yeah, we got the we got the head we got the heads um, laser cut, and then yeah the collars. Um, initially, we we were making them out of sheet metal. We just made like kind of a, a tapered piece of aluminium that we were bending these um, bits of sheet metal around and welding them up. Whereas we now get them, well I now get them get like a company to swage them down from a from a bit of tube so it's got the taper that's awesome um, and then yeah we've like i've got a um like this homebrew sort of um like welding turntable mm-hmm. yeah just kind of get them all like do usually do a batch of about 100 and yeah just <clears throat> stick them on this little turntable weld them up Sort of takes it sort of takes about a week to do a batch of a hundred. You know, we uh, um, stick them on the mill and use a use a fly cutter to cut that the chamfered sharp edge on them. Um, and then yeah, the the collar tube needs a couple of holes drilled and and countersunk for the screws to go in. Um, and then yeah, chuck them on this little turntable, weld them up, and then they're sent off to a uh, a plating company to get um, zinc plated, so they just oh, so they kind of protect them from rust. Mm-hmm. So they well, they got like a couple of holes in them that we the idea was that you could kind of lock them to a tree and leave them in the woods. <laughs> um, so yeah, awesome. we needed to sort of protect them from the rust for that. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I I like that because um I guess you know they're they're even more functional and useful than I realized that you know they're or a particular design that you maybe can't get elsewhere that easily or that, you know, economically, but also, uh, I like it cause it's, it's just congruent. You know, it's like you make bikes that are tools for people who ride their bike in the woods and then you make tools for people to, you know, it's, it's like more holistic. It's the, you're supporting the whole project. It's not just like you're, uh, yeah. getting the bikes made on contract, um, from somebody else and then just, you know, selling them or something. It's, you're yeah. supporting the whole activity and the whole community. So. Yeah, so that's definitely what it's been about for me. Like, like I mentioned, as a kid, uh, I enjoyed making stuff, 
you know i you know i played with a lot of lego as a kid mm-hmm. and um you know you'd get a lego technic kit and you'd follow the instructions and make some little motorbike or or car or something and you know i'd play with it for like 10 minutes 20 minutes or whatever and then i'd take it all apart chuck it in the box with all the other bits of lego and then i'd kind of make something out of my brain yeah. out of my imagination and then play with that for a little bit and take it to bits i kind of had more fun making the thing than i did playing with it yeah um so yeah it's definitely that's definitely what it's about for me is to be is to be making it myself rather than getting someone else to make it yeah 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 definitely yeah. um you know i've seen you talk some about <laughs> frustrations with sourcing oh, yeah. tubing um you know <laughs> so you could get straight gauge 4130 and that would be fine but uh when it comes to getting you know, butted tubing, which can be stronger if you use it correctly and can save weight. Um, you've had some headaches with sourcing that, I think, from uh, your, uh, I don't know the whole story. Like, what, what's, uh, <laughs> what is that like in your part of the world with your suppliers and with what you would like to do? Um, yeah, what are the frustrations you run into? So it's, um, so it's like, it's basically just, you know, trying to make something to really really high standard and then relying on other people to to have that same kind of standard is just really really difficult um it's not limited to um to the frame tubing as well do you know what i mean we've had um countless problems with powder coaters you know because they're just kind of like industrial powder coats i mean they just make or they're just powder coating hundreds and hundreds of the same sort of thing that's just going to go in a big in a big machine and no one actually cares about what the quality of the powder coat looks like mm-hmm. um you know when they come to do a, a bicycle frame that we're charging someone like a thousand pounds for it's, it's got to look good yeah you know they don't necessarily have the same level of care that you'd expect them to have um so yeah we've had just countless problems with powder coat um with you know, um, I got a batch of dropouts that I had someone in the in the UK to make. Um, you know, they like they rocked up at the workshop and they were just completely rusty. You know, they um, hadn't like packaged them properly, so where they were in the box, you know, just smashing around against each other. They had loads of like chips off the corners wow. and dents on them and stuff like that. You know, it's just. Um, <clears throat> You know, the list is endless. It's not just, and that can be really, really frustrating. Like with these dropouts, you got back in touch with them and then like they're all rusty and there's, you know, they're all dented and, and horrible and stuff. And they're like, oh no, that's fine. You know, I mean, that's just part of the, the the tumbling process. We stuck them in the tumbler and, you know, they come out a bit rusty because of the chemical that we used on them and, you know, you end up having to have a massive fight about, with them about the fact that, you know, we'd had dropouts made by someone else in the past and they turned up and they were absolutely lovely. And we were like, yeah. well, no, they managed to tumble them and they weren't rusty. Um, <laughs> and then the company comes back and they're like, no, no, that's just the way it happens. So then we did a bunch of research into, you know, the chemicals used in tumblers and this kind of stuff. And, you know, we found out that, no, it shouldn't come out rusty and, you know, they just kind of used the wrong chemical. And so you go back to them and say, no, look, we've got the evidence here. This is, you've done this wrong. You know, and they're like, no, 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 no. 
uh, you know, we've done it right. That's just that's just how it is, sort of thing. You know, and you just end up going around in circles, wasting your time trying to fight with people about the fact that they don't give a shit about what they're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's tough. And yeah, it's like the like the the tubing the tubing problems. Um, I don't know. Like I, like I said before, I started frame building. I worked in I worked in industry. I was just working in factories, making general fabrication stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like. Yeah. hundreds of the same thing and whatnot <clears throat> and you um when you're working in that industry you're kind of competing with um stuff made in the far east and so the you know the 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 wage that you're getting paid has got to compete with the wage that they're getting paid in in the far east mm-hmm. um and so you're not getting paid a lot of money and you're doing like hundreds of the same thing over and over again. You just kind of get into the man- mentality that like I'm not paid enough to care, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that sort of that mentality has become ingrained in industry over here. So, you know, the people making the things are just they just don't really care about what they're doing. They're not really. Yeah. Um. I don't really know how to say it, but they just don't really give a shit about what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and so it's really for like a a company that's making um, butter tubing here in the UK to try and find people to work in your factory that really care about what they're doing is, is really difficult. Yeah. And especially when, do you know what I mean? Like my the frames that I make, I have to sell them for like thirteen hundred, fifteen hundred pounds. Whereas you can buy basically the same thing from the Far East um, for like five hundred quid. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the people making the tubing have got to be able to compete on price because if they put the prices way up, then I would have to put my prices way up and and so forth so you know the people that they're employing they're having to pay next to nothing so you're not getting super skilled people you're not getting people that really care about what they're doing um so yeah it's just but then what i find really frustrating about the difficulties that i'm having with tubing is that i'm i'm finding that i'm that company's quality control (laughs) so they're they're basically sending stuff out the door. I'm checking it and being like, this is bullshit. And they're like, oh, we're going to have to look into that. And then they look into it and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that is bullshit. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I'm just basically reaching the end of my tether on that sense and the fact that I shouldn't have to be that company's quality control. Yeah. I, I think know, I should, read. They you're... should check it before it gets sent to me. I think you were saying in one of your posts that you weren't asking them, you, uh, Reynolds, right? You weren't asking them to produce anything other than what they claimed they were producing, that like their yeah, own... so they thought like, um, I was trying to avoid saying their name because I don't want them to turn around and be like, you're not allowed <laughs> to buy stuff from us anymore. Gotcha. Um, but, yeah, so you... Um, so... Like one of the things they said is that 
like the the tubing that I supply that I choose from them, they know that thinner stuff passes ISO testing. Um, but then like the ISO test, um, it doesn't include like bikes for competition use or bikes intended for jumping or, you know, so the bikes that I'm making are, are ridden like far beyond ISO testing. Uh-huh. Um, you know, people are jumping a, a like a 30, 40 foot double and they case it. You know, I've got to be able to guarantee that the head tube's not going to rip off. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's gone through FEA testing and we've got our load, load, load scenarios and whatnot. And we can go, right, this tubing that we're specking in the frames is, um, you know, and the design that we've got is going to be strong enough. So what I... So what we do is you get like the uh, the tubing specification that, that is supplied. So they're saying, right, this tube is going to be, you know, 0.9 mil thick. The butted lengths are going to be uh, 100 mil on one end, 150 mil on the other end. Um, and then you put that into the CAD program, you know, put that into your design and then FEA test it and you can go, right, cool. So that's going to be strong enough. Mm-hmm. Um but then when the tubing turns up and the butted lengths are not as long as they say they're going to be and whatnot, um, you know, you build that into a bike and then you can't you can't guarantee that it's going to be as strong as you, you say it's going to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a so, big problem. Yeah. yeah. And for like, uh, if you're making road bikes or whatever, you can say, all right, well, as long as my butted length is, you know, above a certain length it's going to be strong enough do you know what i mean no one's going to really you know the most someone's going to do on a road bike is huck it off a curb sort of thing yeah um whereas you know i need to i need to know that the tubing is what i say what i think it's going to be so that i can say to the person that's going to buy my bike that yeah you can go and ride this in in a in a bike park because you know there's a few other um you know, bikes that are made in the UK where the guarantee is, you know, if you go and ride it in a bike park on jumps and you break it, they won't guarantee it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, there's my my warranty is if it's my fault, I'll fix it sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no limit on where you can and can't ride it and that kind of stuff. And that's because, you know, I've taken the, the spec from the tubing manufacturer put that into FEA and I know that it's going to be strong enough to, to take what you can throw at it. Mm-hmm. So when the tubing turns up and it's not what they say it is, yeah. it's it's a really big problem. Yeah, game over. Yeah, that's that's really frustrating. Yeah. And yeah, like I say, it's, so that's partly the reason why Tam left is that he's just had enough of, of dealing with, you know, that side of things like across the board. Yeah. You know, and... Um, especially when you're having to you know fight with the people that are making the stuff for you you know yeah. you expect it to be a certain quality and they're like oh no no that, that's fine what we've sent you is fine and then you have to spend like days fighting with them and you know doing research to try and figure out whether what you expect from them is acceptable and you know yeah. that kind of stuff. and then at the end of it you you don't get anything back from them you don't get any sort of you know, they don't hold their hands up and go, oh, yeah, we did actually, you know, balls that up. 
you know, you've just wasted a week of your time that you're not getting paid for, that you're not going to get back. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it can be really, really frustrating, especially when, you know, you're not making a hell of a lot of money in the first place. Yeah. When I talked to Eric from Myth Cycles, we talked a lot about doing things in-house that you maybe could do, you maybe could have sent out, you know, and sometimes that is such a helpful thing to do. Um, so, you know, like he used to have his powder coat work done by a place in town and uh, he got to a point where they did pretty well. And then the one guy, you know, quit the job and they had someone else replace him. And he just yeah. he decided that he just wanted to do it himself just for like the yeah. peace of mind of knowing that nobody was going to sandblast his thin wall tubing to a point where it wasn't safe anymore. And yeah. And I think there's just a lot of things like that. You know, you're not going to be able to make your own butted tubing very realistically. And that's frustrating. But I think there's a lot of stuff where like, man, if you had the right relationship with a supplier who really did a good job, you'd probably be money ahead to just pay them for their service and focus on what you do best. But sometimes, uh, unfortunately, you can't count on other people to be as professional as you would like to do things. And and it just becomes easier to just do it yourself uh, or yeah, to do it in house. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting to that point as well, like starting to look at, you know, bringing powder coating in-house and, you know, I'd love to have my own CNC machine so that I can make my own dropouts and all that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, do it. <laughs> but yeah, it's just having the... Easier having said the than done. Buy something yeah, like yeah. That. yeah. Um, and yeah, also, um, you know, learning that side of things, you know, the part of the advantage of getting someone else to make it is so that, you know, you get someone who knows what they're doing to make it and then you can focus on, yep. on what you know how to do. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I get people to, to do the powder, powder coating, to to make the tubes, to, to do the CNC stuff so that I can just focus on welding and making bikes. Mm-hmm. Whereas then if I bring all that in-house and do it myself, then I'm going to have to take time away from making bikes to do the powder coating, to, yeah. to do the CNCing and all that kind of stuff. So... Yeah, there's definitely, I do want to bring it all in-house, but then it's not, that's not like business sense really, is it? Mm-hmm. But then neither is getting other people to do it and then ballsing it up. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> tough, which I think really speaks to the value of like when you do have a good relationship with someone who supplies something that you need and they're doing a good job, that's amazing. And that, you know, you yeah. got to do what you can to hold on to that and keep keep everybody happy and um, you know, be looking for those those next uh, places that you can find that are going to make your life easier. Because, you know, I have that with what I do. I've found a material supplier that just makes my life so much easier. And I don't know who else I would go to if something happened and I couldn't get material from them anymore. I would, I would it would yeah, suck. Right. And so I'm, yeah. you know, always trying to make sure that uh, I maintain that relationship. Yeah, and that's kind of where I am with the tubing as well. There's like there isn't actually anyone else that makes the tubing that I need. Um, you know, there's Columbus and Data Chai and that sort of stuff, but they don't really make tubing for mountain bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very wall in the States that makes stuff that's pretty close. Um, but then I've got to import that and pay import duty and that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. it's not like, it's not ideal, the stuff that they've got off the shelf. So, yeah, I'm kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. I, I kind of need this company to make the tubing that they're making, but at the same time, I want to go to a different company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you need, a, um, you need to start your own tubing company, but 
exactly yeah, well, that's not what you want to do so <laughs> yeah. i have like i have looked into it i've looked at um you know how much it would cost to get some some like tube drawing and butting machines and that kind of stuff but then i'm in the same sort of yeah. position they were in i'm gonna to have to find people that care about what they're doing i'm gonna to have to inspect the tubing before i send it out to other frame builders and all that kind of stuff so i don't know it's just kind of kind of difficult maybe you know i've thought a lot about maybe you know just doing a sort of general welding and fabrication business where you don't have to rely so much on having such a high quality product you can just kind of you know make something and send it out the door and it doesn't really matter that much yeah yeah which uh certainly could make your life easier and then at the same time you know there's an itch that it scratches to make such an awesome product you know something that you love like it's it's frustrating when you have a hard time getting it to where you want it because of all these headaches but at the end of the day when you ship something that you're really proud of you know there's there's nothing else that scratches that same itch exactly yeah totally yeah like you'd you know it would be an easier life making other stuff like that but then it wouldn't be as satisfying (laughs) yeah 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 absolutely um Let's see what else here is on my list. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, what it's like building in the UK. You know, a lot of my guests are here in North America, and a couple are elsewhere. Uh, what you know, what kind of community have you found? I know you said when you first started, you didn't realize that uh, the sort of artisan handmade bike world was as big as it is nowadays do you have lots of contacts in the uk with other builders and different capacities that you know that you talk to and are friends with and help each other out or do you feel a little bit more like uh where you're at is is you know not particularly busy with builders or what, what's that like uh so like when we first started out it was basically just um us and curtis that were making mountain bikes mm-hmm. um and I didn't know like the road side of things as well. Um, and then I went to Bespoke and, you know, that opened my eyes a load more to the, to the size of the, like the sort of frame building community in the UK. Yeah. Um, but then also, um, like the, I got in touch with the guy at Bicycle Academy, Andrew Denham. Mm-hmm. So I'd kind of, so when we first started out BTR, I was like working full time as a welder fabricator and we were doing like making bike frames in evenings and weekends. Um, you know, and then it's, and then I, I'd lost my job kind of just before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was kind of scrambling for trying to find a new job, um, you know, as quick as I could. Um, and I basically just got in touch with everybody that I could think of, you know, see if they knew of any jobs going or anything like that. And I got in touch with Andrew, Andrew Jenner with the Bice Academy, just being like, do you know of any welding jobs going, anything going on? And he was like, well, actually, I'm thinking of offering like TIG welding courses here at the Bicycle Academy, like come up and have a chat about that. So I went and, you know, went and met him. We talked some about, you know, the fact that he wanted to offer a TIG welding, like, sort of frame building course. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was kind of loosely on the cards, like, going to to work for him, teaching TIG welding. Um, And then it was, like, 
he had a guy working for him teaching the frame building courses, like the brazing frame building courses that he was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he left really suddenly, like he <clears throat> he basically left and didn't work his notice period or anything like that. So Andrew phoned me and was like, I need a frame building teacher. Can you start next week sort of thing? <laughs> um so yeah, I kind of like handed my notice in at the at the job that I found, you know, that that day and then sort of like I came to, to Froome where the film frame building course uh, courses were held during the week. You know, I stayed at Andrew's house um during the week, taught the frame building courses and then went back to uh Worthing on the weekends. Um, and was, would build bikes and, and that lot on the weekends and then come back to Froome on the weekdays um, so yeah like working at Bicycle Academy it, like I met a ton of people that were kind of getting into the frame building side of things and you know um, you know there were a lot of existing frame builders that would come to do the brazing course and that kind of stuff so I met a lot of people that way Um and also, like, a lot of the people that I taught are now, like, well-established frame builders. So, uh, Mark Hester of Prova, like, yeah. um, I know you've done a podcast with him. Um, he, I actually, he actually came on a frame building course and I was his teacher. That's awesome. Um, Tom Sturdy, he makes, like, those titanium sort of lugged yeah. bike frames, mm-hmm. uh, road bikes. Yeah, um, I taught him as well. Um... Uh, Adeline from uh, Mercredi Bikes. She was another another teacher as well. Or mm-hmm. I taught her as well. Um, like Ted James, he was like he taught at the at the school as well. So like um, as BTR became like um, more and more busy, I then became like part time teacher at Bicycle Academy. Mm-hmm. And then you know Ted came on and would teach. Um, would teach when I was working on BTR and then also Robin Mather he was also a teacher as well so you kind of like got to know them pretty well um so yeah I did like the um like the people that I know and the contacts that I have now and definitely has definitely um grown because of like working at Bicycle Academy and my workshop now is right next door to theirs. Like, um, I actually have a door that kind of goes into their workshop. Wow. Um, and for a long time, you know, I had to go into their workshop to get into mine and that kind of stuff. So we would, you know, we had, we would share the kitchen and that kind of stuff. So I was always, you know, sort of in their workshop and talking to the students that were there and, you know, the teachers that were there and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, living, sort of having the workshop right next door to theirs has been has been really great for the sort of community side of thing, things, and especially now that I'm now that Tam's left and I'm on my own, like having them next door is like great for sort of sanity. Do you know what I mean? When I'm you know bored of my own company or frustrated or whatever, I can just go in there and kind of have a chat with some people in there and stuff like that. So it's yeah, it's really yeah. cool. So yeah. you you uh. You mentioned that Tam eventually left and that part of that was the frustration with dealing with these, you know, these other, uh, you know, suppliers and stuff. <laughs> it just makes you want to pull your hair out. 
what was that like, you know, having a partnership for all those years? And, you know, I think a lot of people caution against a partnership because it can be messy. But on the other hand, if you have two people that get along and who have uh, skill sets that complement each other, and if, especially if you're, you know, friends and you enjoy working with each other, that could be a really good combination too. Like, what was that like uh, for all those years? Um, so, yeah, like you say, it's... Um... It's both really good and really frustrating, um, especially like as um, we were sort of a 50-50 partnership. Um, so like neither one of us kind of had the um, controlling share. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we were we kind of had the same goals um, and the same sort of dreams. Um, and the same sort of motivation. So, like I said, we were both into the engineering side of things rather than the aesthetic side of things, and um, we both just wanted to make really good bicycles rather than make loads of money um, and that side of things. Um, and we were we were really good friends. And now that we've now that he's left, you know, we still are really good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like you say, having having skill sets that complement each other. So like he was a really good design engineer and I'm a fairly decent TIG welder. Um, so, you know, he could concentrate on designing stuff and I could concentrate on making stuff. And so that sort of partnership dynamic worked really well. Um, you know, and it was, it was like really efficient in the sense that I could just kind of get my head down and make bikes and yeah. not really have to concentrate on anything else um but at the same time you know like um when it came to making decisions or deciding what direction to go in and that kind of stuff it can be really frustrating because if you know like um one of you's got sort of a slightly different idea about what you should do you can kind of not really get anywhere so i think um both Tam and I are not really uh, um we don't, don't really like conflict conflict. Uh-huh. And so <clears throat> we've never really argued about, about something or something. So I can think for for example like T shirts and that sort of thing, like I would have ideas for T-shirt designs that I wanted to to get out with, and then Tam didn't really like it. You know, you just kind of wouldn't get anywhere. You just wouldn't release T-shirts. Um, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. and just that that sort of thing is is really difficult. And um, <clears throat> I guess it's like it's the same as like working with anyone or any sort of relationship you've got kind of your own way of doing things and when someone doesn't do it that way you're just like what are you doing like you know you'd um so you know like you'd say for example you're working with someone in a workshop they're just like a general job or whatever and you know you're doing the same sort of thing like i don't know like filing a tube or whatever and their technique of filing a tube is different to yours and you're just like watching them just like what the hell are they doing like <laughs> you're just making that so difficult like why do they not just do it the way i do it uh-huh. um you know stuff like that is is really difficult when you're in a partnership um 
particularly uh, with ours where it was 50-50, do you know what I mean? You couldn't necessarily say to each other, stop doing it the way that you're doing it and do it the way I tell you because you could just as easily turn around and go, no, yeah. you do it the way I tell you to do it sort of thing. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, I think it was... Um, It's really difficult in the sense, yeah, like I was saying, it's both, it was both really difficult and really good, the partnership that we had. Um, but it kind of, when we were working, to, so we're a lot better friends now that we're not working together than we were when we were working together. Yeah. So, you know, like spend all of our time together and just kind of, you know, rub each other up a little bit and, you know, when it came to like going for a ride outside of work, we would just kind of wouldn't really talk to each other or, you know, would kind of do what we could to kind of avoid each other, if you know what I mean, because it was, yeah. you, know, didn't, you know, it was outside of work and we'd already spent enough time with each other. We didn't really need to spend more time with each other. Yeah. Whereas now when we see each other outside of work, it's like, it's like we're friends again, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, we never really fell out or anything like that. It was just... It was a you know, lot. Was just, <laughs> you spent yeah, a lot the, of time together, yeah. Yeah. I always used to say to people, it was like it was like we were married. Do you know what I mean? We'd, we'd spend <laughs> all of our time together but never have sex. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, reminds me a little bit when I talked to Ross Schaefer from Salsa Cycles, you know, that he had all this time in the bike industry and, and he he left and he felt like he had to. And, you know, part of the silver lining is, you know, he still loves bikes and they're still, uh, you know, it's, it's awesome. He gets out and rides his bike. And I think there's a lot of people in the bike industry. If you stay in it long enough, you can get kind of jaded and exhausted. And, um, and yeah. you, you might not feel that way. You might eventually just get sick of it or something. And so sometimes, um, you know, more of a good thing is not always, uh, better you know sometimes there's a there's a limit you got to put on the amount of time you spend with a really good friend or there's a limit you got to spend yeah, on right. the time you do you know spend doing a certain thing for me i've gotten so used to working alone and it's going to be weird in the future when i eventually have to work with other people i don't know if i'll ever do a partnership i think at some point i need to have an employee or an intern or an assistant or whatever it is uh you know proper employee of course at some point um and uh, that's going to be weird because I'm so new to that and I'm so used to just uh, all the all the things that come with working alone. And, you know, there's a mess in the shop and you've got nobody to blame but yourself. <laughs> and yeah. All of those things that, that are very different when you have other people around. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think like um, sort of like the partnership model, it can work if one of you has got um, – sort of uh, a controlling share so that you know someone is the boss yeah um but you know the, like the difficulty with an employee is that you know they're not invested in the company they're not you know they're just there to get their wage and go home at the end of the day mm-hmm. you know they don't necessarily have to care about the the end result or anything like that you know because they could just get the sack at the end of the day sort of thing yeah um, whereas if you've got someone who's got like a, a share in the company, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's in their interest to, to make sure that things go really well. I think that can work. You know what I mean? 
I think there's a lot of companies these days that, you know, they give their employees a, a share in the company so that when it comes to the sharing out the profits at the end of the day, they get some. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, it's it's in their interest to like put in the overtime when they're not getting paid for it or, you know, to, to make sure that the quality of the product is really good and so that the customer is really happy with it and that kind of stuff because, you know, when it comes to the profit at the end of the year, they're going to they're gonna get a payout. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about before we wrap it up here is, and I ask this to everybody, which is, you know, advice that you would give to your former self on this journey of getting into frame building and building a bike company, <laughs> things that you could have learned a lot, uh, or you could have saved yourself a lot of frustration by, you know, realizing something sooner. You could also think of it as advice that you'd give to other people that you see struggle with these kinds of things. I know you said, you know, through your time with bicycle Academy, you've met lots and lots of other builders. And so you see, a lot of the same patterns I'm sure over and over again with people who are newer to it, making similar mistakes. Uh, do you have anything that comes to mind with those questions? Um, so I think like I often think to myself, if I, if I knew what was involved, like before I started, I, I would never have started. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, the, the position that I'm, uh, I don't really know how to say it. Like, there's, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I just wanted to make bike frames, and I like, I'm still, I'm still in that position now. I just like, I just want to make bikes. I don't want to have to deal with, you know, like couriers messing frames up in postage, or you know, tubing suppliers sending stuff wrong, or you know, like I got a load of um, trail tool handles. I ordered like 200 trail tool handles. Um, and they basically didn't package them. They sent them without packaging, and they all just like over half of them got destroyed in Jeez. in in transit. So, do you know what I mean? I'm I've spent so much time just like going back and forth with the with the company, trying to sort out like you know sending these tools back and getting new ones and and whatnot. So, yeah. you know, the other day I. Had to like I packaged all the tools up and then I was talking to them and they were like oh could you could you send us a couple of pictures of those things you're talking about and I'm like I've already <laughs> packaged the tools up now I've got to unpack them to take oh these pictures and so I mean it's like um so yeah, I don't know advice to um I mean I've seen like with a lot of people that come to the bicycle academy um or like some of the some of the people have invested like you know five ten thousand pounds in tooling before they actually get started into you know setting up a brand yeah um you know and then you've got all that debt to to make up um you know i'd definitely advise going going against that sort of thing you you know just get the very basics of what you need to start with and then build up Mm-hmm. Um, you know when you can tr- like try not to get yourself into debt like BTR has never borrowed any money from banks or anyone like that mm-hmm. you know we just kind of started with money in our back pockets and then built up from there um, you know and that can be like a much longer longer road to success because you know you haven't got the, the money to buy tools that you need 
but at the same time, you haven't got any debt to to get messed up on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a really difficult one, isn't it? To, yeah, it's, it's like we've said before. It's like making making bikes is a really difficult way to make a living, especially um, I think mountain bikes as well, where like the sort of handmade road bikes is a lot more understood um you know getting a getting a, a road bike that's exactly to your size is quite important because you know you're going to be sat down in that position for hours on end so you need something that's going to be like comfortable and yeah. sort of specific to your to your fitment whereas with mountain bikes it's um it's not quite so critical do you know what i mean you're spending a lot of time outside of the saddle moving around and that kind of stuff so having something exactly to your size is not quite as critical and then also you know they're getting really muddy and dirty and smashed against rocks and all that kind of stuff so it's having something with a really fancy paint job you know is not necessarily that desirable mm-hmm. um so you're competing with like the bikes made in in the far east a lot more directly uh-huh. um so yeah trying to make a trying to make a frame that competes with those prices or trying to make a frame that you can get a decent wage from and then getting people to understand why it costs so much money, you know, is a lot more difficult. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like we've said, making, making bikes is a very difficult way to make a living and it's not, you know, you're not going to get into it and make make tons of money you're going to get into it because it's something that you're really passionate about it's something that you you really enjoy doing something that you take pride in doing not something that's going to give you lots of toys and lots of money to spend down the pub yeah yeah it's a tough biz and um yeah and it's it's hard too to think about starting because it's like if you want to be efficient at all you're going to need a certain amount of tooling and tooling is expensive but i mean i didn't ever go into debt and i hardly spent any money on my tools for the longest time when i was trying to build up a shop i had um you know tools that i would make for myself on you know like i had a crappy mini mill and and i was trying to make fixtures on that that didn't really work and after years and years of farting around i found a good deal on a Bridgeport manual mill and then I could make a lot more stuff for myself but it's still it's still very slow and expensive and um you know it's uh man it's faster if you just buy the stuff you need when you're starting but but that's just a lot of money to put into a a pursuit that it's it's damn near impossible to make any money in the first place so it's hard to think that you're going to make that money back and uh it's it's I always felt like it was a chicken or the egg thing with getting a frame building business going because if you don't have the tools and if you don't put nice parts and paint on your bikes then they're never going to look that great and it's going to take forever to get there but um, yeah right yeah I don't know it's just it's it's a hard thing yeah, to so get the ball rolling of, yeah where we like I was working full time and then building frames in evenings and weekends and you know that's kind of like I said that's allowed us to, to build up from nothing yeah, um, and get to where we were. Cause you know, I was paying the, paying the bills with an actual job and then, you know, having fun building bikes and selling those evenings and weekends. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I thought a lot about doing some YouTube stuff as well. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about, 
you know how you found that sort of thing yeah well uh you should definitely do some the the thing that i think about youtube and podcasts is that there is just always there's always more room we're not close to a saturation point yet and so you can make a podcast or a youtube channel and um people will watch it if they want to watch it and people won't watch it if they don't watch it but i think for both of those there's i think there's more demand than there is supply and so i don't think yeah. you need to compete at like an incredibly high level to start to build a youtube channel or a podcast that can be really successful and meaningful to people and um you know the kind of people who are good at building bike frames who have like attention to detail tend to be good at a lot of things like maybe producing video or producing audio and so I think like for frame builders I think a lot of people should be making YouTube content and podcasts that um, you know serve the interests of what their customers care about it'd be a really good way to sort of market yourself and build rapport with the people that maybe will buy your stuff but it's also just a lot of fun you know like all of my all the things that I've learned in my adult life that I've been excited about I've learned mostly through YouTube and yeah, so yeah, you know, like learning how to weld. I broke my hip. Uh, I crashed my bike when I was 24, and I kind of knew TIG welding. And then while I was laid up for a couple weeks, um, I just watched all these YouTube videos about buying the right welder and about pulse settings. And, you know, I, I learned so much about filler rod and all these different approaches and gas lenses. And then I got a machine, and when my leg was healthy enough that I could kind of sit down and practice weld, I just practice welded forever. But anyway, the point is, like, I think YouTube is, is a really cool opportunity for people. And I think it has a lot of reward that um, it might be another five or 10 years before YouTube is so competitive that it's hard to start a channel. I think right now, if you care and if you try, it takes a lot of time to make videos, but it's not that hard to get people's eyeballs on them if you put in the time. That's my feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think as well as like... Um... <clears throat> where the, the audience is not having to pay for it as well. It's a lot less competitive. So, mm -hmm. you know, with trying to sell bike frames, you're actually trying to get people to part with thousands of pounds. And if someone <laughs> buys a bike frame from you, they're not going to buy one from someone else. Yeah. Whereas, like, someone could watch your YouTube video and then go and watch, like, one of your, in inverted commas, competitors' yeah. videos and, you know, still, you know, you're not necessarily competing with each other. You're just producing content on there. Yeah. And, um, and I would say it's okay. better, you know, like if there's an established niche, then you can do collaborations. I mean, the guy yeah. who did the most frame building successful YouTube channel before me and probably still he's eclipsed me, but, uh, uh, you know, pithy bikes was a yeah. hobby guy in California and I knew him, you know, it, when he was getting started, he and I would email some and he actually bought this tool that I made on a manual mill years and years ago. And so I've kind of known him for a long time, but it has definitely helped me that someone else already sort of made a YouTube channel about frame building. And, um, you know, I think that YouTube is just, you know, the sidebar is a distraction machine and it will take people away from your videos, but it'll also help people find your videos. And I think it's, we're not a, yeah, there's not too much stuff on YouTube. Yeah. So do you, um, you have someone that helps you out with the filming and that sort of stuff, don't you? Yeah, yeah, and I haven't made YouTube videos much in the last six months or something because I used to have a little shop and it was frame building related, and then I got a CNC mill, but I wanted to keep all my frame building stuff, and so I had manual mill and lathe and welding area and frame fixture, and as I got more serious about CNC machining, uh, I wanted to replace my small CNC mill with one that was like twice as big, 
And when that happened, I was like, okay, I got to get rid of some of this stuff. I got rid of my manual bridge port and some other stuff. And I just don't, my shop isn't really set up for fabricating bikes anymore. And so um, I'm finishing the, the build, the parts on my mountain bike that I built last year. And so I want to do a video or two on that. I've done some shop tour videos in other people's shops and I want to keep doing those. And I would like to do like, there's a little bit of space in the shop. So I could do, I would like to do a fillet brazing demo at some point and some other things. But for the most part, I think I'm going to need to move into a bigger shop before I can do much like bike frame building related videos again. Yeah. Right. So do you like, you have, um, I've noticed in some of your videos you have someone like holding the camera for yeah. you and like um how did you like how did you get that person on board to, to come <laughs> and film stuff for you and whatnot? Yeah, well that's my roommate and uh so you know he helps me make the videos and he does most of the editing and stuff. Nice. And so uh first, you know, he just had a lot of time on his hands and then I started paying him. And it's probably not nearly enough. I think I pay him like 150 bucks or 120 bucks a video or something. And we haven't been doing it lately, but um, that's really not enough money for the time and the effort and the skill set that goes into making those. But um, yeah, I mean, it just helps me get it done. And um, and I there have been times where I've done YouTube videos with a tripod and all that. But for certain kinds of detail-oriented shop work, it's just so much work to be moving the tripod and setting it up. And there's a different dynamic when you're in a room by yourself, it's a lot easier to let your voice just become a little bit less enthusiastic and less animated. And if you have someone in the room with you uh, and they're, especially if they're reminding you to like really keep the energy up and to be enthusiastic and, and the camera's kind of moving around, it's just more dynamic. And I think it, it becomes a little bit more exciting to watch. And so, um, yeah. you know, if it, and it's hard cause it just takes a lot of time video is hard because it takes so much time to produce. And that's part of why I do more emphasis on my podcast lately is it's, it's less time intensive. Mm -hmm. It still takes yeah, so I've a couple, made a couple hours, of videos um, here and there, like a few riding ones. And I, like we built a bike for Grandero, um a couple of years ago, maybe mm -hmm. 2018 or something. Um, and yeah, while we were making that, I filmed it all and stuff. But then, when it came to editing, it was just like <laughs> a huge project. Like, yeah, it took it took so much longer than I thought it was going to to edit the whole thing. Yeah. And it wasn't until like earlier this year that I actually released it onto YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, like you know, I'm already flat out building frames, and then to mm -hmm. then take on filming and editing as well. Yeah, right. it's hard. I think one of the big things with that is that. Um, there are YouTube accounts that I'll watch where the creator puts so much work into the production and into the editing, and I love it. And then there's other accounts where the person basically does the whole thing in one take with almost no editing, or it's yeah. just a couple video clips. And it's like, if the content is good, I'll still watch it, you know, and I yeah. might I might fast forward through a couple parts or something, but... I think realizing that like what you have to offer to people isn't always just like high production value and that, you know, if, if you can make it easier on yourself. And so some of the videos that I've done, it's basically just, it'll be like a little intro clip and then I'll, I'll lay out, you know, what I'm going to talk about in the video. And then I just talk off the top of my head about, like I did a video that was all about bike specific tubing and I talk about tapers and butts and, you know, S bend chain stays and just to give people like the vocabulary and the basics. And I lay it out and it's probably like a five or a 10 minute video. And I just did that off the top of my head with some visual aids. Those ones are really easy to record and edit and upload because there's just not a whole lot going on. But then if you mm -hmm. had another video where you wanted to have like slow-mo shots mixed in and 
quick cuts and you wanted to have all these other things. Oh my God, that could take forever. And not, not to mention yeah, just right. learning the audio or the um, video editing software up front can be, <laughs> can take a little while uh, to get just up to <laughs> speed. But um, yeah, yeah. That, I think it's, if, if you want to make content about what you do and you don't feel like you have any too much time to put into it, I would really recommend like thinking critically ahead of time about how to make it easy to produce because if it's good content, uh, people will want to watch it even if it's not high production. And if it's bad content, nobody will want to watch it even if it is good production value. You know, like you like if you don't have anything interesting to say or show, people aren't going to watch it. Uh, they're yeah. not going to get anything valuable from it. And if you actually are an expert in some subject matter or something, then it can be a very simple video and, and people will love it. Yeah, cool. Which I'm not saying that I'm an expert about frame building. I'm trying to walk the line where I know enough about it that I can be helpful to beginners and maybe my different perspective could be helpful to other frame builders who maybe didn't think about it the way that I have. But I realize that yeah. I have a lot less to offer than, you know, most of my guests on the podcast and that sort of thing. I just uh, I feel like it's um, it's something that I could share. And so that's why I wanted to make those YouTube videos. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've definitely watched some of them. Yeah, that's pretty good. Quite interesting. Yeah, and it's it's a I think it's a great time because it's just um it's relatively easy to make them and upload them and if you're just kind of consistent about putting them up you'll you'll build an audience and and you know people will find it who are interested and and, yeah, right. that's, and it, that's the hard bit though being consistent yeah and yeah. it's it's also cool like i didn't do it to make money and i don't really make that much money but if you turn on ads and you have a decent amount of watch time you can make some money and if you really you know like for people who want to like do it as a living or something i don't think it's actually that complicated you know you just have to have like uh, certain kinds of affiliate deals and whatever and it's like less sexy and fun but like you know if you just really care about making good content there's ways to do that actually and make money from it which is pretty cool um you know whatever yeah but uh yeah well yeah, I've, got the, um, I've got the ads turned on and that but i've um yeah not not got enough um viewing hours yet for it to be for it to actually start making money yet yeah yeah, and that's the hard part is it just you just need to put in like when I started my YouTube channel, there were a couple months where we were doing like five videos a week and then yeah. it we just kept slowing the pace down. It'd be like one video a week and then eventually it's one video every two weeks and now it's been like three videos in the last six months. So it's I've definitely and which is funny because now I think in the last like two weeks my my subscriber count went from like ten thousand to ten thousand five hundred. It just it goes up automatically. I'm not even making new content anymore but like in the beginning to get from zero to 500 might take you you know five months or something or who knows yeah, it's 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 hard to get the ball rolling yeah but um yeah well anyway i uh i really appreciate uh you taking the the time to be on our show i say that at the end of every episode i should have a, a more creative sign off or something but yeah, um, but i do appreciate thanks, um, it thanks for having me on this uh pleasure yeah yeah, for sure. Enjoy your evening. For me, it's it's three in the afternoon, so I guess I'm gonna I gotta get back to work here. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Cool pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Bye. Take it easy, Joe.